for this service, and our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will be very, very close to us as we study God's Holy Word. Today there's a great need in the world for a change of life. We've heard about political change and all of the rest, but really there's a great need for a personal change, a heart change. My father, H.M.S. Richards, is going to study with us now the subject, Our Need of the Holy Spirit. The greatest need of Christians today is spiritual power. Without it, we can never carry the gospel to all the world. Before starting his disciples on their lifelong worldwide work, our Savior told them to tarry or to wait until they were endued with spiritual power from on high. They couldn't depend on their training or their talents. They had to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of these early disciples, and we must remember that we need the same power. They had the gospel, but they did not have the power. Before the day of Pentecost, the disciples were timid and fearful. They kept the doors locked. They stayed in the upper room. They were afraid of the mob. But after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they were courageous, willing to die for Jesus. Remember this, the disciples had the right doctrine. They didn't need any new Bible doctrines. They needed God's power. Dr. E. Stanley Jones remarks that in these days, whenever we're troubled in conscience about our spiritual weakness, we add a new wheel, a new commission, a new committee, a new plan or regime. But when all this has been done, we usually find that we have no added power. While we were busy turning old wheels anew, we should have been lighting the central fires. Then the Spirit of God would have sent the power and the warmth to change our hearts and the hearts of others. While Jesus was here on earth, he was the comforter and helper and guide and teacher of the disciples. 
When he was about to depart, he promised to send another comforter. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, he said, that he may abide with you forever. John 14:18. Here the Holy Spirit is called another comforter. The Holy Spirit can be everywhere and with all of God's children at the same time. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, said Jesus, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Well, Jesus did depart, and the Comforter was sent. As surely as Jesus went back to the Father, so surely did the Holy Spirit come to be with Christ's church on earth. Most great evangelistic revivals and movements are started not from some council of great church leaders, but from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit on a group of obscure, humble men and women. In answer to Christ's prayer just before his ascension, the Holy Spirit came with great power on the day of Pentecost. It had been dwelling in the hearts of God's people, but now it came with mighty power and has been in charge of Christ's church ever since. Of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. John 14, 17. We find the same wonderful truth stated here in different words in Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It was the Holy Spirit that gave power to the preaching of the apostles on the day of Pentecost and afterwards. Thousands were converted. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, on another occasion the Savior said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive. John seven thirty seven. Are you thirsty? Then why not drink? It will not satisfy you just to look at the flowing stream or the cool spring. Drink. Let us not be afraid to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse our lives, to show us our mistakes, to comfort us, to give us hope and faith and power for his service. Then we will live better lives in our homes, we'll preach better sermons, hold better Bible studies, be willing to sacrifice more for Christ, have a better influence among our neighbors, and the work of God will go with greater power. Some people think the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they'll have some great feeling of ecstasy. It's not necessarily true. There couldn't be a greater mistake sometimes. First of all, the work of the Spirit is, as Jesus said, to prove the world of sin. You'll find that in John 16, 8. When he has come, he will reprove the world or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit strives with sinners, Genesis 6, 3, convicts us of our wrongdoing. That's one of the works and main works of the Spirit. As you continue to seek for the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit, your prayerless life, your poor Sabbath-keeping, your carelessness in tithes and offerings, your cold, formal profession of faith, your envy, your jealousy in the home or in the church, your hatred of others, unkind words, scandal, backbiting, darling sins, impurity of thought, bad language, harsh words to those you love, all these things will come up before you. With God's power, put them away and receive his power and blessing. You may, with the Apostle Paul, think that you are the chief of sinners when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. This is God's answer to your prayer. You've been praying for the Holy Spirit, and now you're convicted of sin. 
That shows the Holy Spirit is doing his work in your heart. The Holy Spirit has come and is convicting you. He's pleading with you to repent. He is saving you from the lake of fire and eternal judgment. He is preparing you as the temple of the Lord. Dwight L. Moody said, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that's contrary to God's law, the Holy Ghost will come and fill every corner of our hearts. And I believe that many a man is praying to God to fill him when he is already full with something else." Unquote. Now that's the truth. What are the conditions that we must meet in order to be filled with the Spirit? Well, first we might mention prayer. Jesus was praying at the time of his own baptism when the heavens were opened and the Holy Ghost descended upon him and the voice of God declared, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Luke 3.22. Notice, first prayer, then the opening heaven and the descending Spirit. The second condition of receiving the Holy Spirit is unity. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as the Apostle tells us in Ephesians 4.3. We cannot permit discord in the family or in the church if we wish to honor God, and if we wish the power of God's Spirit to be upon us. Third, right motives. Sometimes we seek the right things, but with the wrong motives. Sometimes we seek for the power of the Holy Spirit simply to be great in the eyes of the church. That's wrong. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. We read in James 4.3. Remember, the Holy Spirit exalts Christ, not us. Jesus, not self. If we are seeking for power to exalt ourselves, we have the wrong motive. That was the trouble with Simon, the sorcerer, of whom we read in the eighth chapter of Acts. The fourth point we wish to make is this. There must be a hatred of sin in the life if we accept the Holy Spirit. It was because Jesus hated sin and loved righteousness that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1.9 Many are without the power of the Holy Spirit because they're living unclean lives. We are told to abhor that which is evil and to abstain from even the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 The fifth condition is obedience. We are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Acts 5.32. Notice that word obey. There's little obedience in the world today, and not much preaching of obedience. There will be little forsaking of sin unless people believe that it exists. Little power in the gospel, message of salvation, unless people have a terrible conviction of God's broken law and the condemnation which it brings. When we surrender all to God and are willing to obey the voice of the Holy Spirit, by yielding every sin that we know of, performing every duty of which we're aware, and laying all on the altar of sacrifice, then God will fill us with the power for service. The sixth requisite is faith. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3.13 1 
Friends, we receive this promised power through believing. Having received the righteousness of God through faith, we lay hold of the Holy Spirit by that same faith. Then power will come in our personal lives. If we have complied with the conditions laid down in God's Word and have earnestly prayed for the Spirit of God, we may believe that we have the promised blessing. We may accept it with thanksgiving. Unbelief hinders our receiving the Holy Spirit. It is our privilege to go forth in the power of the Spirit and to live in that power. Shall we not go along before God in prayer and wait the promised baptism of his Spirit, that we may work for him against the powers of darkness and the evil of our day? Not in our own strength, never, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 1 Corinthians 2.4 When a person prays for the Holy Spirit, he's asking for God's richest blessing, which brings all other blessings in its train. There are many references in the Bible to the work of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, for the latter is simply the old English name for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Surely we should think more and pray more about our need of His power. M. G. Pierce describes his experience in standing on the east coast of England and looking out over a vast stretch of oozy slime and ill-smelling mud. Barges were lying high and dry on their sides. It was useless for them to heave anchor or put up their sails. Had all the citizens of the land brought pots and kettles and pans filled with water and poured it out upon this muddy beach, it would have been to no avail. But as he watched, he saw the remedy. God turned the tide, and in swept the waters of the sea, burying the mud and bringing the breath of sweetness and life. The water flowed around the barges, and instantly everything was in activity. The anchors were weighed, the sails hoisted, and forth went the ships upon their errands. So we may look upon the sin and the sorrow and the war and the trouble of this world, its drunkenness, its gambling, its impurity, its doubt, its confusion. Is there no remedy? Yes, friends, God's remedy. Some of our churches are so respectable, so dreadfully respectable, as someone has said, that they're high and dry too. Their sails are not unfurled. They're going nowhere. Oh, friends, what we need is a flood tide, the flood tide of God's Holy Spirit, the mighty power from heaven, the Holy Ghost in our hearts and in our churches. It's ours if we will have it. Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And may it be soon, soon is our prayer. May the blessed Spirit come upon us.